Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor, and I'm very excited for my interview today because it's in person. It's not over the phone. I can actually see the eyes of the person that I'm talking with. She's an actress. She's a writer, improviser, teacher, and I learned from Googling that she has a Ph.D., in something you would not expect her to have, but I mean, we'll talk about that later. So, welcome to the show. To the show, excuse me. Welcome to the show, Sarah Zurich Brown. Welcome, uh, Sarah. Hi, very happy to be here. I'm excited to talk yeah. to you, especially because, like I said, it's in person. Yeah, and it's a lot more fun talking to somebody in person than at a computer screen. Right. I mean, that's still fun, but. Although it's intense. I mean, we're looking in each other's eyes. It's and how true. often do you do that with it, people these days? That's you know? true. <laughs> that, that is true. Be there right with a person. That is yeah. true. So I want to ask you just right off the bat, you know, growing up, what late night shows influenced you in your comedy? Yeah. Uh, so I did watch a lot of late night growing up. My parents like weren't so strict about bedtime, as I recall. Um, and so I remember definitely watching Late Show with David Letterman. And I was a big fan of his like top 10 lists. I can't remember exactly what it was called now. But yeah, they would do the 10 top 10 countdown. So watched a lot of David Letterman loved like the relationship that he had with uh, Paul Schaefer. Uh, watched Conan O'Brien too. Watched a lot of Conan O'Brien. Um, May year two thousand. <laughs> that was my favorite segment there. And then I also, I have memories from when I was very young, like you know maybe before eight years old. I would go stay at my um, aunt's house on the weekend, and I would stay up really late and watch Saturday Night Live, and then. Things like Benny Hill, which I think came on even later. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I did watch a lot of late night when I maybe should have been sleeping because I was a young child. <laughs> so to talk about the top 10 list a little bit with David mm-hmm. Letterman, what drew you to them? What, what did you think was clever or funny about them? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was just because it goes straight for a joke, right? So it's very much like, yeah... Uh, thinking about things in different ways, you know, it's like, oh, here's a topic. And how can we like break that down? Um, and looking at it, look at it from multiple angles. I think, um, that's kind of a cool thing about comedy. I took a stand up comedy class recently with Joel Byers, uh, at Highwire. And I think that was one of the strategies he talked about with comedy is just, you know, take a topic and like look at it from a lot of different perspectives and that can help you like find the comedy in it not just yours but like you know how are other uh other people looking at it how might somebody you know different than you look at it um and so i think the top 10 list is a good example of just like how what are all these different perspectives that we can take on this issue did yeah. you ever try to write your own top 10 list uh no, I did not necessarily try to do that, but there were other things that I tried to do. Um, I loved Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Do you remember that? that? It, okay, okay yeah, that you, this might be a little bit before your time. It was a segment on Saturday Night Live, um, and it was kind of like uh, just a little bit of an absurd kind of piece so it wasn't like a usual just show a sketch with with people in it it was um uh they would it would kind of be these like scrolling screens of text uh and they would look like um like 
as I recall, like beautiful mountain pictures kind of things, and it'd be deep thoughts with Jack Handy. And it would just kind of like describe these life lessons, and then they would take this turn in the end that was really humorous. Um, yeah. And I think I tried to, I, I probably tried to create some of those because it was like, uh, those were all about subverting expectations. So you think like, oh, I'm just being led through this nice meadow and learning this nice lesson about life. And then it would kind of like take this dark turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, yeah. the twist is mm-hmm. what you liked about it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So to talk a little bit about Conan, you you mentioned the year in the year three thousand, two thousand, two thousand, yes. the year two thousand. <laughs> Can you explain that sketch to me? Yeah. So that was again <laughs> um, a long time ago, like long before the year two thousand was actually <laughs> upon us, which is crazy to think now that we're in twenty seventeen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was a sketch of like about what things would be like in the year 2000. And I guess it shared the similarity with um, what I liked about the top 10 lists in that it would be like in the year 2000 and list all these things that would be true mm-hmm. uh, in the year 2000. But um, it just had this kind of like nice dramatic effect to it in terms of the staging. Cause it would be, as I recall, Conan and Andy Richter, you know, sitting, uh, Conan at the interview desk and Andy on the chair and they would like kind of dim the lights. And I think Conan would put like a, uh, a flashlight under his face and just be like in the year 2000. I don't know. Maybe Andy Richter said that. And then Conan would say the things, I don't know, but it was, it had this like kind of spooky futuristic vibe, which, yeah, it's funny now because it's actually pretty the pretty distant past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I guess now mm-hmm. I, I don't even know what the shows would do in the year twenty fifty. Twenty fifty. Yeah. Would be like the joke. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I had a, yeah. What's our next milestone? The two thousand was pretty big. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so did you like that too? Because it it kind of took you for a twist. Like in 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 the essence where you know they say in the year two thousand they could say something serious like in the year two thousand the stock market will be good or whatever right but they take a twist in the funny way and yeah so that was similar mm-hmm. to liking the SNL sketch in in this yeah I think I think there were definitely some uh, similarities uh, between it and what I liked yeah probably some dark probably some dark humor in there mm-hmm. um, yeah were yeah. you a fan of dark humor growing up. Definitely, definitely a fan of uh, dark humor. And even now I'm a fan of dark humor. I'm part of a sketch group that our our name is Eternal Slumber Party. (laughs) (laughs) And we tend to do very like dark sketches. Um, When I first first started doing sketch writing, uh, all my sketches were about ghosts. So and I kind of, yeah, I explore a lot of themes with ghosts and death and marriage um, but kind of marriage in a in a dark way as well. So because yeah. uh, uh, you know Halloween is just around the corner, this must be your favorite time of year. I'm actually I am really into Halloween. Yeah, I like it a lot. I went around my neighborhood last night just like um, walking, looking at Halloween decorations because it is <laughs> uh, it's cool. It's an interesting thing to like. Um, yeah, versus Christmas, where it's like oh, it's the time of the year to celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. Halloween is this weird kind of like recognition of our own mortality right um and yeah like the thing that really scares us which is death and so yeah but so it was kind of cool to see those different uh different decorations and the way people um yeah choose to choose to 
express it creatively. I think there's just a lot more like room for creative. Well, that's not true necessarily, but I like the places people can go with Halloween. And this is on subverting expectations. I saw a lot of pink Halloween lights last night. Hmm. Like you see a lot of orange, but then there were a few houses where they had pink. And I was like, that's creepy. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) like why pink? lights on halloween Mm -hmm. what's that about you know you see orange you're like okay i expected that green okay you know green mists right like witches pink you're like what does it mean right i'm very scared it's even even scarier than just the typical orange (laughs) yeah so as a kid because i'm just picturing like this little eight-year-old girl who's walking around like talking about dark things and creepy things how how was that growing up and that's your interest? How did you compare to other kids? Um, I would say that I was always kind of a strange, strange kid. Uh, but, and very, yeah, very active imagination. Um, some things that I did that were fun when I was really young. I did, I do remember the first story I wrote was a ghost story. So it was like about these ghost twins. Uh, I wrote this like long, long story about that. I was very into reading, uh, you know, like R.L. Stein and ghost stories. Although I was like terrified, super terrified of ghosts. Um, I, you know, I, I was afraid to be in my uh, aunt's house upstairs alone. I, you know, I was just, um, yeah, scared of, scared of being like alone in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's kind of funny that I recall from my childhood is I was in, I was in a Halloween uh, haunted house when I was a kid. So my church they had like a Halloween um, haunted house that took place in the school that had been closed down, and it had been closed down for a long time since like the 1950s, 1960s. And so it was this old abandoned school. And so we decided to do a um, Halloween haunted house in there one year where I, pl- I think I played Lucy Borden with the, you know, the ax. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like nine playing Lucy Borden. <laughs> um, and it, and I got super terrified in, in the haunted house. Cause I'm in this school that's abandoned that I'm really scared of. All the mm-hmm. lights are out. I'm like a person who's supposed to be in this, you know, haunted house as an actor, which is just a weird thing for like a nine-year-old to be like playing these <laughs> murderers. You know, it was, I don't know if I was Lucy Borden. I was like hanging out with Bonnie and Clyde. I remember it was like the, this room. Um, and this is, it turns out to be kind of an embarrassing story because I was in fourth grade, but uh, I got really scared and I, and I needed to use the bathroom, but I was like too afraid to like go through the haunted oh, house no. to use the bathroom. So that's when I wet myself when I was like in fourth grade and I went out and I, I peed my pants, but I was just, yeah, I was really scared of the, <laughs> it was an ultra scary situation because right. I was in the haunted house. I was afraid that the school was haunted. Um, yeah. So I thought I did think a lot about ghosts and stuff as a child. Yeah. You know, that's something you don't really think about though. When the, the actors in the haunted house get scared of their mm-hmm. own haunted house. Yeah. I wonder if that's like a thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, like across the world where they get scared. Right. You, you, would you think that's, that's probably I mean, you experienced it. I so. definitely, yeah, I definitely experienced it. Uh, I was not like, you know, 
nine at the time. So I think (laughs) it's also like, who are you recruiting to be your haunted house actors? But I, you know, I thought about doing that in Atlanta because I think that is, you know, a gig that actors can do, right? Is, Mm -hmm. um, be part of a haunted house. But I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I could, I, I could mentally handle being part of something that was that terrifying. Do you like going to haunted houses? No, 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 no. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, yeah, I don't seek it out. I I remember going to some when I was younger and it was always like, uh, I mean, the ones I was part of, uh, and, and then I had that embarrassing experience. Maybe that's part of why I don't want to go as much, but, um, yeah, I also don't know that I really like getting scared. I don't, I don't watch too many horror movies, mm. you know, I do like thinking about, uh, ghosts and stuff like that and death. I think it's interesting to, to think about, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I necessarily want to be scared by it, mm-hmm. especially since I was like legitimately very afraid of it when I was young. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. So to backtrack and to go back to your childhood and your teenage years, when did you first start getting involved in comedy? Yeah. My mom was an improviser and yeah, that's what I do now. And so when I was young, she would direct us in these shows uh, at my school and these talent shows. And so she would play um, improv games with us to help us uh, get ready to design our sketches and stuff. We would essentially make sketch comedy happen uh, like with my we would create the shows ourselves. There were sometimes you would have scripts like you would in normal uh, school play. But with my mom, she'd be just like, let's make something happen. And which was really cool. So that was my earliest influences was just with her making these really cool talent shows that as kids, we got to come up with the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's really when you you started realizing, okay, I kind of like making people laugh. I kind of like being up on stage. Yeah. Yeah. I also did some stuff when I was like in middle school that was fun. Um, whenever we had the deuce kind of sketch stuff, I loved, I loved doing that. One of my claim to fame in middle school is I wrote a song about Robert Frost, the poet. Mm. And, uh, it was so good that my teacher, there were two classes, but my teacher had me like, come be a special guest in the other <laughs> class so I could sing my Robert Frost song. Uh, and then, yeah, just remember, I remember like creating sketches with my friends, um, making videos. We had a really fun video I made when I was young that was like a spoof of Titanic with Barbies in high school. We, a friend and two of my friends and I, it was just this epic thing. Like we spent all night filming this like Barbie Titanic and, uh, I don't think it exists anymore, which is sad, but I, I I played, um, Jack in the spoof and it was, yeah, just super fun. These, um, and then I also did some traditional, more traditional theater stuff too when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I was in plays uh, and did comedy there. But the stuff that I remember the most that sticks out in my mind is just these unique things that I was able to, you know, create with my friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're in high school, as you get to like senior year, you're looking at colleges. Were you saying to yourself, okay, I want to go somewhere so I can pursue comedy? Or were you saying to yourself, I'm going to go somewhere to pursue something else and do comedy on the side? Yeah. So I had a pretty big gap in my artistic career, which is I did do plays and stuff through the end of high school, but that wasn't my primary focus. So I was uh, very academically driven. I was the valedictorian in my high school 
And Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I gave a great speech. I, I believe it. <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. It made people cry. It was awesome. Um, it had Latin in it. It was a very great speech. Whoa. Yeah. My, but so my primary motivation when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I, I was like very academically driven. I knew that I wanted to like help the world. That was my thing. It was like, you're smart. Um, you need to help the world. And so, uh, my first semester in college, I ended up taking global issues, social problems, African American history, which was a very, uh, heavy course load. I'm sure. Yeah. And I balanced that out with a class on love and sex. Uh, but I was very much about like, I have to, I have to help, help the world. Mm. And I didn't, yeah, at the time I liked, I liked theater when I was in uh, high school, I had taken creative writing twice. I'd repeated the course, um, cause I loved it, but I just didn't see that as like an option for myself to really pursue that. I thought I have to study something that is, uh, less arts focused. And I've, I've come to the realization recently that I think part of the reason I was like that when I was young is I was in a very, what's called fixed mindset mentality, which is you're either good at something or you're not. And with arts, there were, you know, there was a time I kind of flubbed an audition in high school and I didn't think that I was as good at acting, uh, as some of my friends were. And so I didn't feel like, okay, this is the thing I should do because I'm not the best at it, right? Whereas like, you know, math, science, other academic subjects I was excelling in, I was being the valedictorian. So I think there was a part of me that thought if I was a writer or a comedian or an actor, you know, I would show my, I would, I would be perfect at it already. And I would get like all the glory from day one. And so yeah, that's just something that I've discovered recently is, and I've, I've, I'm trying to switch to what is called a growth mindset, which is much more like oriented toward every, you're always kind of a work in progress. So there's always room to improve. There's always room to learn. Failure is part of that learning, which is a much healthier place for me mm-hmm. to be, uh, especially when it comes to art stuff because uh, yeah, I didn't pursue it for a long time. And I think part of the reason I didn't pursue it is I was afraid of failing at it because I loved it so much. Mm -hmm. I also didn't see it as like a realistic career option. You know, it was like, Oh, that's something that you can do for fun, but that's not something that you can really pursue as a career. And what's been interesting is, you know, being in Atlanta and being involved in the arts community, I see a ton of artists who do, you know, make this work, make arts careers work for them. And, And it is, um, tends to be more of a mixed basket of like, you do lots of different things. Right. But it's definitely a career that people can have. And so I wish there's part of me that wishes I would have known that when I was younger and been able to pursue it from college, you know? Uh, but there's also, I learned a lot in, you know, studying what I did study in college was economics and women's studies with a minor in sociology, anthropology. And then, like you said, I went on to grad school and studied demography, which is population studies. And uh, I learned a lot through all of that, but it, I definitely took a break from anything kind of comedy arts related for probably about 10, 
years. Yeah. So you're going through college, you know, you're doing your heavy coursework and <laughs> then you go to grad school. I mean, which is for real. Yeah. I, I'm in college. So I, I see the, the grad students in there, you know, with all their books and their textbooks. So yeah, I, I know it's a lot of work. You graduate and then what happens? Yeah. So I graduated um, grad school in 2011 and I was at Berkeley for grad school and then I went and did a postdoc so that's just like an opportunity to do more research in my field at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for a year and then moved down here to Atlanta um, with my husband and was a postdoc at Emory for two years. Okay yeah. and so when you came to Atlanta is that when you started getting reinvolved in the comedy scene? I it took about a year actually from when I moved to Atlanta and the first thing that I did in Atlanta is uh, Atlanta also has a pretty active storytelling scene mm-hmm. and so the first the first kind of arts thing I did where I got up on stage was I went to these storytelling events and because uh, I'd, I'd been a fan of the Moth podcast mm-hmm. and I was like, I, I really want to do that. I think I'd be good at that. So I found that there was an event in Atlanta, went through my name in the bucket and, you know, got to start telling stories. And what's awesome about when you start telling stories uh, is that you realize that you do have power over your life. Like it gives you this kind of like, oh yeah, I, I make my own stories happen. And so... um that made me doing that and feeling that spark there made me want to pursue other things that I'd loved. And improv was one of those things. Like I said, my mom, um, she had been an improviser, so I'd done it from a very young age. And then I'd also, I'd gone to a camp in high school that involved improv. And I had done like a little bit of improv comedy in college with my college's troupe, although I was too afraid to audition to be on the comedy troupe. Uh, that fear of failure, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so funny now because I uh, help run an improv theater and teach improv, and I was <laughs> afraid to try out for my college's improv troupe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you, oh, so you were telling, you know, you were telling stories. What was yeah. the first improv troupe you got involved with? I took oh. classes at Dad's Garage. Oh, was that Dad's Garage? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I'd seen a couple of their shows, and I and I was like, okay, I think I'll take a class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you took your classes. Tell me how you got involved at Highwire. Yeah. So after I got done uh, through the courses at Dad's Garage, I met Ian Covell and started training with him because he was offering classes in long form improv. Mm -hmm. And I had not studied that yet. Mm -hmm. And I really liked him. He was a person that went the first time I met him. I was like, you are important to me. You know, it was one of those, it's one of those, uh, you ever meet people like that right, in your life and you're clicks. like, yeah, it just yeah. clicks. And it was like, you, you're important to me. Like mm-hmm. something is here. And then that turned out to be super true because yeah, we've worked together really closely now for like, uh, I guess close to three years, uh, working with Highwire. And so I started training with him and at the time he was just offering classes. And then when Highwire became Highwire, which was the beginning of 2015, I was there and I was no longer doing my academic job at that point. I had been not doing it for about a year. And so I had a lot of time flexibility. And so, uh, there were just things happening in the theater, like helping to run our volunteer program and stuff that I was like, why don't I step in and do this? Mm-hmm. And I did. And then, yeah, it's just been, uh, I've, I've been helping out with stuff since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you first met Ian, so Highwire was not a thing yet. It was just him offering classes. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me the story behind the name Highwire? Highwire. 
I I can. We uh, we were looking for a name, and I think that the idea with Highwire is just that um, improv is this balancing mm-hmm. act, right? So it's like being up on a high wire, mm-hmm. right? Where ah, you don't know what's going to happen, but you're so yeah. Improv involves like focus and and determination at this task Mm -hmm. but it's yeah it's this very risky thing so i think that's um yeah partly what drives the name highwire and then i think a lot of our um, imagery around the company is very electric electricity focused and i Mm -hmm. think that connects well to comedy too because comedy is all about these little like sparks of inspiration and uh the meeting of people right with improv or sketch and that and that just like explosion of, well, we're creating this thing together spontaneously. Right. Yeah. It kind of has this electrical feel to it, right? Connecting with people and making people laugh. It's very, yeah. Yeah. Similar, sure. similar to electricity. Yeah. Do you remember any of the other options that you were considering for the theater name? No, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember right now, no. Okay. Well, I I love the name Highwire for what you said, because I do think it is a balancing act. And, you know, improv can be so, it's risky, you know? Because, like, when you write a play and the play is funny, it's going to get laughs every night. Like, it's guaranteed this is what's going to happen. But with improv, it's kind of like, you don't know. It could yeah. be funny or it could not be funny. Either way, you have no idea. But that's what makes it so much fun. Because you don't know what'll happen. Yeah, I don't know what'll happen. That's why the big laughs are so big, and then when it's dead silent, it's awkward. But, <laughs> you know, I, I was talking to somebody else about improv, and they said, and really, I, I, I love this when thinking about improv, you know, no one ever leaves a show and goes, oh my god, you guys, you guys remember that moment that it was silent? Yeah, no right. No one ever says that. You know, they always leave going, oh, you remember this funny scene, this funny scene? Mm-hmm. So I think the highs are really high. Yeah. But I, yeah, I love the name Highwire. I think you did. That was a good choice. Thank you. So when you first started the theater. Uh, yeah, I actually had a thought on one thing you said, which is the scripted comedy. You know, you're going to get laughs. What's interesting with sketch is you don't always know where you're going to get the laughs. And that mm-hmm. varies from audience to audience. So what's been fun for me, because I create, I told you I'm part of this troupe called Eternal Slumber Party. And we've had some, we've had shows where we've done the same show multiple times. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is some nights it's like, oh, that, that sketch got a huge laugh that night, a huge response. And then you do it again. And oh, that sketch didn't get as much response, but another sketch did. So I think even with scripted stuff, it still depends on like the audience and how the actors play things. But definitely true. Yeah. For improv that what's going to hit, what's not going to hit. And that's part of the suspense is, mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So do you like improv more or sketch or stand-up? Well, great question. Uh, I would say, personally, I like improv the best for me right now mm-hmm. because it's the one that I've done the longest, so it's the area that I feel most comfortable in. And, yeah, I just love that feeling of spontaneity and creating things with people. I do like sketch though too. It's fun to sit down and work with something over and over. And that's what I liked about stand up as well is just honing something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I took this class and it was just, yeah, every week coming in and making things tighter and tighter. So I am a writer and that, that really appeals to me, making things um, tight and, and like really pack a punch. Mm-hmm. But, 
what I love about improv is you just get to inhabit so many worlds, work with so many different people that kind of are trained in the same mindset to make something happen. Uh, Yeah. I just went up to the Vancouver International Improv Festival where I was part of what's called an international ensemble. And so it was people from all over North America and we gathered and rehearsed every day for like five hours together Mm -hmm. and did two shows. And it's just awesome that you, I have this skill set that I have been training in. I've been doing improv for about five years now. I have the skill set that lets me meet strangers and like create, we can create half an hour, an hour of comedy mm-hmm. together. It's really cool. So the shows thing. you did with them at the festival, that was improv shows. Yeah. Okay. What is the coolest uh, experience or story that you have from the festival? From the festival? Like the greatest thing or coolest thing that happened to you? Uh, that's, Yeah. I need a second to think about that. The greatest thing that happened to me at the festival. There were just so many good moments. It was mm-hmm. so much fun to be with like lots of different people. I will say one moment that really uh, touched me is I was in the show um, on the last night. And two people that were in my ensemble uh, were Tom Rittenhouse and Megan Leahy, who were improvisers at Dad's Garage. Mm-hmm. And when I first started out and I was taking classes at dad's, I would go on Thursday nights and I would watch, I would watch them and I was huge fan, huge fan of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd never really gotten a chance to work with either of them very much, but then we were put on this ensemble together, had a lot of fun, like we're, you know, rehearsing with them, being in Vancouver with them. And then when we did the show on Saturday night, uh, it was kind of a more narrative show, like a play. And they ended up playing my parents. And it was just this beautiful moment of like, I had sort of come out um, and done something and established myself in this kind of this teenage role. And then they came on and they act, they were my parents. And I was just like, you know, it felt like this moment of arrival, right? Because mm-hmm. I remember, you know, recalled like really looking up to them when I first started out in improv. And there I was in this awesome moment with them as my parents in Vancouver, you know? So you just kind of... That's the other really cool thing about comedy is just where is it going to take you? You know, I could not have anticipated five years ago sitting in that theater when I was barely, you know, giving myself permission to pursue comedy uh, that I would be in five years, you know, doing it professionally in Vancouver. Uh, Yeah. With with these people that I was admiring on stage. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really cool, like full circle story. Yep. Yeah, it went from you know the you were sitting in the audience <laughs> looking up at them to then making eye contact with them on stage. Yep. in front of that, that's a very cool. That's a yeah, very cool in front story. of yeah, in front of an audience, and that was yeah, cool too. Just you know, you sort of develop a relationship with your audience. Audiences here, people know you, right? So it was cool to be up in a completely different place. And ah, oh, yes, this still works. Right. <laughs> yeah. So for you, what do you think is the number one? most important rule of improv. This is another piece of advice I got up in Vancouver from the director of my ensemble for the first two days. His name is Matt Foliot. He's an, an improviser up in Canada. And the thing that he said that has really been rolling around in my mind a lot is play slow to play fast. And the improv principle that that's building on is the idea of listen and react. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people just talk at each other, right? You have two people with an idea, an agenda, and they're just talking at each other and they're not really taking time to listen mm. and respond. 
um, I also see just people feel like under a lot of pressure to make things happen, right? Like we got to make this happen. We got to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach level one and, and level two improv and, and I see so many great scenes in those classes when people are just willing to engage and listen to each other, you know, mm-hmm. that so much great comedy happens from the get go in improv classes when people just sit and listen and talk to each other mm-hmm. because it is at the end of the day, you know, improv is just two people talking. And mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of my improv philosophy is we're all capable of doing it in the sense that we've all have some number of years of experience, just being a human being talking to other people. Right. right. And what improv does is layers pretend on top of what is our our everyday interactions. So, yeah. Can you do improv? Well, can you talk to people? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I think what's cool about improv is, yes, it's challenging because it's talking to people in front of people on stage. Um, you know, there's a desire to be to be funny, to be entertaining. So you're, you're learning those skills, but at the same time, you're learning skills just to be a more effective communicator Mm -hmm. because we are just practicing the thing that we do anyways, which is talk to people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Things for me get kind of meta in my classes because sometimes I'll get (laughs) nervous, you know, talking to people and it's just like, you teach people to do this. (laughs) I'm struggling uh, to do the thing that I teach people to do. <laughs> Maintain eye contact, Sarah. <laughs> so do you like teaching? I love teaching. You, yeah. I love teaching. Do yeah. You, do you like it because, I mean, as, as one of the operators of Highwire, I mean, you're looking for, you know, more new talent to add. So do you like it in that aspect or do you like it because you get to share everything you've learned with others? Yeah. Um, I definitely don't look at it from a recruitment point of view it's more what what are we offering people Mm -hmm. and i love that aspect of it because i think you know improv is something that's um, shaped my life and for me was uh, helped me develop skills that have really gotten me through you know issues with anxiety have helped me unlock my creativity and form a community of people you know friends. And so I, I look at what we do is offering that to people, right? I love that when people come to class, they're just given an opportunity to have fun and be with other people and connect with other people and speak their truth to other people. You know, the, the two classes I teach, the level two um, is Armando, where people tell their true stories and then you do improv scenes inspired by it. And I love that one because people are just like talking to each other. They're They're telling each other about their lives and then yeah creating comedy from that so yeah i love teaching because you know you get to be the best one of the best parts of people's week where they get to just come have fun and play mm-hmm. and yeah i also from a perspective of it's it's a cool it's a cool skill to teach as well like yeah let's figure out how to be funny Mm -hmm. and 
connect with people. Yeah. So for you, how do you teach? And this is, I love asking improvisers this question. Um, but when a scene is like bombing, mm -hmm. when like there's two people up there, it's just failing. Nothing is working. Nothing is working. Besides obviously someone else like sweeping and ending the scene. How do you save a sinking scene? Whew. A lot of it is context specific mm -hmm. uh, to the scene. Because, yeah, what exactly is going wrong? Is somebody um, not listening? Have you made it about things that are not important? I think a general strategy that I use that is good, and I use this for myself too, is just making your statement about the other person and in particular how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So I had a, yeah, a scene like this myself recently um, I was part of the Atlanta Improv League over the summer with my duo partner, Chris. We were in a duo, Sarah and Chris, <laughs> uh, which is, yeah, side note on that, which is funny, which is Sarah and Chris are very common improv names in Atlanta. And so we had one show where we just invited all the other people named Sarah and Chris to be <laughs> part of Sarah and Chris. That was super fun. Anyways, we were having a scene where we were just kind of like talking a lot about things that weren't us, you know, we were describing some scenario and I felt disconnected from him. And I just looked at him and said, you're upset. I can tell you're upset, you know, and just talking about naming their emotion or naming an emotion that you're having mm -hmm. can really help to like reset and connect people. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so I, that's a thing that I do, you know, for myself in a scene where you go back to like, what was, yeah, what's my point of view on this? What's my point of view toward the other person? Mm -hmm. And the scenes that I see like in class that don't go places, it's usually because you're just talking about an activity, not really how it relates to the two people who are doing the activity. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> the sign for me that a, a scene is usually gone like, in a way that you wouldn't want is you start negotiating over dollar values. So whenever I hear like transaction, transaction, mm -hmm. like how much is this going to cost? Um, I'm like, ah, oh, stay away from that. Mm -hmm. I gave that piece of advice to one of my classes recently for their grad show. I was like, and I just don't want to hear anybody say $15. Just don't do it. You know? <laughs> uh -huh. And, uh, <laughs> I'll end the show. If you, if you That's say $15 it, and what was really cool about that was they gave me a card with $15 in it. So oh. I found that's an effective strategy for getting a tip there you go. as an improv. Don't say $1,000. Do <laughs> <laughs> If I'm back there and I hear $1,000, but it's just because like, yeah, money and stuff like that is so arbitrary on stage mm -hmm. that it, yeah, it doesn't connect with people in the way that like you actually connecting to your mm -hmm. partner, which is something that people really like seeing, right? Is people just connecting. So yeah. you encourage like being real, just be real with the other person. Definitely. Definitely be real. And, um, and then I think something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is just, yeah, what is that reality? Mm -hmm. Is that reality how you as a person 
feel. So it's, it's sometimes easy to play close to like your own morality or your own, what would I do? What would I not do? But then we tend to do, you know, explore some things on stage that you wouldn't normally do. Right. And that's one of the stuff. What's one of the fun things about improv is you get a chance to try out things that (laughs) you wouldn't normally, uh, like get to try out. Like I like playing, you know, uh, FBI field agents and stuff or, And so that's not something I would necessarily uh, get to do. And so, yeah, the the question of playing it real is like, what is, whose reality? Is your reality versus your character's reality? And yeah, something I've been working on a lot about recently is establishing that who is the character at the top of the scene? What are they about? And then how can you kind of play that reality through throughout the scene? Because mm-hmm. um, that helps you get to the funny part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to talk a little bit now about uh, Eternal Slumber Party. Yeah. Wh- where did that name come from? Yeah, one of... <laughs> I think we were just uh, talking about like mashups, uh, different mashups of things. Mm-hmm. And I think we we tended to know that we were kind of like death, dark humor related. So mm-hmm. we, I think it was just a brainstorm and somebody said uh, Eternal Slumber Party. And I do know that we had, we did have, uh, you were wondering about other options for Highwire, which I can't remember, but I do remember we were potentially going to be Atlas hugged. <laughs> and that, yeah, that had like won some vote. And, and But then, yeah, one of our members was pretty adamant that we should be Eternal Slumber Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a little bit like, ooh, it's just, yeah, it's so dark, right? Eternal right. Slumber Party is a dark name. Right. Uh, but yeah, we ended up going with it and it describes our group very well. So when you, when you sit down to write a sketch, mm-hmm. where do you get the idea from? A lot of times it'll come from life and what I've been experiencing mm-hmm. lately. So, uh, and just different things that, that I've been through. So some of my sketches, um, I have one about a romance author Mm-hmm. and kind of her struggling to write a sex scene. Mm-hmm. And that was actually something I did the year after I left my job in academia is I spent about a year writing romance novels. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, oh, that's an experience that I've had. Uh, I wrote a sketch recently about my the gym that I go to. Oh. I'm very into fitness, and so I wrote a sketch uh, about that. Mm-hmm. I, I write sketches about marriage. I'm married. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, uh, sometimes one, uh, <laughs> a sketch that I wrote recently, or it was in a pretty recent show about that. That was fun is I'd gone to the grocery store and went to the mayonnaise aisle and there was just like so many mayonnaises. Have you been to a mayonnaise mm-hmm. aisle recently? Mm-hmm. It's just like, mm-hmm. where did all these mayonnaises come from? <laughs> and so I wrote a sketch that was just a woman in the grocery store at a mayonnaise uh, at a mayonnaise aisle trying to decide, you know, she's like, should I get my regular mayonnaise? But then she's like tempted by all these other mayonnaises. Exactly. And so all these other mayonnaises are calling out to her like, ooh, don't you want me? I'm a chipotle mayonnaise. I'm a spicy mayonnaise. And yeah, in the end, she sticks with her regular mayonnaise. But it's very, yeah, very much like... I love um, sketches like that where it's so you take one idea, which is just like, how do I be monogamous, monogamous in my marriage and put it on mm-hmm. a grocery store right. <laughs> mayonnaise aisle? Right. <laughs> <laughs> mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah. So, so you like taking like real world experiences mm-hmm. that you have and then putting a slight twist on them. Yep. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you, yeah. Where's the comedy in, in that? Yeah. Right. So uh, is there anything that you're working on now? Any sketches that you're writing or yeah. any ideas in your head that you haven't yet put down? Yeah. Actually the big thing that I'm working on now, I'm trying to write uh, what I call a three person, one woman show. Okay. And it's called Please Don't Touch My Shoes. <laughs> so I have struggled with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder in mm-hmm. my life. And uh, so this show is kind of like trying to explore that in a humorous way and looking back, you know, at my childhood and experience, like sort of these early recall things that I have. What was, uh, yeah, so I look at, yeah, early incidents that I have and um, then kind of, more recent things and I call it a three person one woman show because in the show it's me a raccoon and a chicken who in the raccoon and chicken are both played by actors and um yeah so it's kind of a show that mixes storytelling which is again how I got into comedy and looking back at these things in my life and then I also try to make it kind of sketch like in that there's a play we're having kind of um interactions myself the chicken and raccoon you know the chicken is like upset the raccoon is there and Mm -hmm. you know i have different relationships with them which is all it's all still being written right now so that's developing but yeah that's the my main my main focus right now in terms of trying to create comedy that's scripted is working on that show how what's it like to write a well i mean in your case is a three-person one woman show but but yeah what 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 is it like to sit down and say okay i'm writing the show for one person and it's gonna star me yeah is that difficult did you have to google like how to do that i'd seen some shows so yeah you you talked about you uh you've interviewed mark kendall right Mm -hmm. and amber nash and i've seen both of their shows so they both have one person shows Mm -hmm. so there was there are examples out there didn't necessarily have to Google it. It was just more, I guess the big thing that I, that I had to do was start setting deadlines for myself. So I was just thinking, yeah, thinking through, I'd known for a while that I wanted to do a one woman show Mm -hmm. because something like that you can travel with. And one of my goals is to travel with my comedy. Mm Although I made it a three-person, one-woman show, which is more complicated. <laughs> but, yeah, I was just so I just started, like, having the idea kind of germinate in my mind and what does this look like and what have I explored in the past. And um, I actually have, and you can see it now if you look over there, a statue of a chicken. Oh, yeah. And one day I was just <laughs> looking at that statue of a chicken and I was like, I think the show is me and this chicken. <laughs> so, yeah, ideas just kind of, like, you're like, okay, I want to do this thing. And then you kind of like almost make yourself soft focus and look at the world around you. And like, so what, what else is jumping out and giving me ideas? So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I had the chicken. And so I set a date for myself to get something done and had, and then had like a read through with a friend. And that read through was like, oh, I need another character. Mm-hmm. Here's the raccoon. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, set another deadline for myself. I got to do a table read of this. So, and then I've also invested in um, a coach. I'm working with a coach, a, a woman named Shannon Turner, who runs a company called Story Muse. So I've been working with her to help develop my stories because mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted it to like draw draw in my real life. And yeah, so it's been about like it's been very much about set a deadline for yourself, mm-hmm. invest in this because I, it is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. But it's hard to 
yeah, how do you turn those desires into actually getting things done? Right. Yeah. So when do you think you'll have it completed? Yeah. It's, it's, it keeps being a, a, a shifting deadline. So I actually have performed it as in kind of a workshop sense twice already. Okay. But it, it is still being developed. So mm-hmm. there, there have been drafts that people have seen. And right now I'm working with uh, my director, who is Robert Mello. He runs an acting studio here in Atlanta that I've trained at. And a, a couple of other people to develop. We're developing the script together. So kind of almost improvisationally, like, oh, here are the beats of this. And then what's it like if we explore in these different directions? So that's mm-hmm. been awesome. I hope to have something that can be seen by the public um, like the middle of next year. 2018 okay. so like may-ish june-ish. may june yeah but yeah what i'm discovering and i think this is true um for mark i saw his show mm-hmm. um evolve this way is just yeah it's, i don't know what done necessarily is going to be with this show because i think it is going to keep yeah right now uh it's evolved you know even from a lot from my first read read through and it's still like kind of coming together what it's going to be like. And yeah, I think it's just going to keep going to keep evolving. But the important part for me is I really want it to get done Mm -hmm. and out there. And so that's why I found for myself deadlines and stuff are super effective at helping me do that. Yeah. So what's what's in the future, in the near future, for both you and for Highwire? Yeah. So Highwire, cool stuff that's happening right now. We have a lot of, uh, we're in a community-based model and a team-based model. Mm -hmm. So we have um, improv and sketch house teams that Mm -hmm. play. uh, The improv teams perform weekly, and then the sketch teams right now are performing once a month. And so what's really cool is we've kind of, got all these teams that have just been formed recently and yeah, watching them perform over these next six months is something that I'm really, really excited about. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on with high wires. Just, yeah, driving this, driving this team model forward. And for me, the big things that I'm going to be working on is definitely the show. It's for me. I'm like, I've got to get this, this show, done. It's something that I want. It's something that I'm super excited about. I guess too, because I did not say this, but I've, I've, in addition to having a PhD in demography, I have a master's in public health. And part of my drive with the show is since it's about mental health, it's just, it is like a public health show. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular talking about trying to get the stigma around getting help for mental health, right? So I, I've struggled with OCD for my, um, a, a large part of my life. And there was a lot of time that I didn't really get the help that I, that would have been helpful <laughs> because I was afraid to or money or whatever. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling this larger sense of purpose with this show in terms of creating a dialogue about, about mental health, because I think it's something that we don't necessarily talk about. Um, I'm, yeah, kind of ashamed to talk about it and, and, and what I've struggled with. Um, so yeah, I'm working a lot toward getting that produced because I do think it's something that 
when I, yeah, when I did go to grad school and, and did those academic pursuits, I was very much motivated. Like I want to help the world. And yeah, that, that sounds very much like a glossy 20 year old thing to say, but I do think, I do think I, I am helping the world. I think my vision of that when I was young was very like the whole world and, uh, you know, driving forth, uh, health initiatives, you know, from kind of a social science place. But now I'm coming at it from this arts place that I just absolutely love. And, and I see it, you know, already in what I do with high wire helping, um, you know, keep support the team system, support all these artists that get to come and be a part of our shows is just been something that like, wow, I, that's an awesome way to help the world. The students that I have, I've been teaching for about a year now and bringing people in and having them enjoy comedy, tap into their creativity, connect with people. You know, that's that's helping the world. And now with this show, I just, yeah, I want to be able to, to, you know, hopefully produce it here in Atlanta and around the country um, and just, yeah, open up a dialogue about mental health, kind of share the things that I've struggled with in hopes that that helps other people that have dealt with the same mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I know earlier you just mentioned how sometimes you would, you feel ashamed to mention that you struggle with this. And I think that this show is definitely going to be a great <laughs> opportunity to have other people come and see and say, Oh, you know what? I'm not alone in this. Yeah. I, I'm not, Oh, I'm not the only one who feels this way. So I think, I think you have a really good chance to not only impact people's lives immensely, but to, in state social change and social impact on people. Yeah. I think you have a really good thing on your hands. Thank you. Yeah. I look forward to whenever I'll be there. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Next May, it's already in my calendar. Just block off the whole month. Both May and June, all four weeks. All eight weeks, anyone yeah. calls yeah. and like, no, 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 no. I can't, I'm going to see a show. <laughs> yeah. But I am, I'm very excited to see what it turns into. Yeah, yeah. So I like, as the final question on my shows, I ask everybody the same question. So you're in a good group of people. Okay, great. This, for this question I'm about to ask. Um, but I don't, I don't get your hopes too high up. I don't know if I just like raise them up really high for this. No, question. no, I'm no, have them, managing like, moderate, expectations like, four out of 10. And then if you like the question, then you can raise it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my question to you is if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who aspires to be in your shoes one day, what would that piece of advice be? Set a deadline is the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. The the strategies that I've been employing recently that have really helped me to get things done uh, is just being conscious about managing my time and setting realistic goals for myself. So, yeah, set a deadline, number one, and don't be afraid to pursue what you're passionate about would be the other one. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like I'm talking to somebody who was in the place that I, <laughs> that I, that I was, right? Which is, yeah, just very afraid of failure and afraid of rejection. And uh, yeah, improv has really helped me deal a lot better with that. Mm-hmm. And 
it continues. That's, I guess that's the other thing that I really like improv is it continues to challenge me to deal with that. Right. Because yeah, I've reached a point where I'm like, Oh, I'm five years into this. I should be amazing. There should be no more problems. Isn't this when I'm perfect? Isn't this when I get my PhD in improv and I'm the expert and in many ways I am, but in many ways it's, there's so much more room for growth. And so, yeah, I just think you have to be intentional about what is it that you want? What are you passionate about? And how are you going to get it done? So set a deadline. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, if people want to learn more about you or see where you're performing or learn about Highwire, where yeah. can they find you? What are some websites Great. or Twitter yeah. or Facebook? So you can find Highwire at highwirecomedy.com and also on Instagram and Facebook. And for me, I'm at sarahzurichbrown.com, which you probably have to look at, at the um, information you released with this podcast that's printed to find out how to spell all of that. But <laughs> sarahzurichbrown.com, and then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you letting me into your house. You have a very nice house. Thank you. Way. I know nobody <laughs> listening can see your house, but it's nice. Thank you. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, and I just really appreciated talking to you because I learned so much and I had a great time today. Yeah. Thank you, Max. I, I really enjoyed talking with you too. And then for anybody listening, remember you can find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night or you can go to our website at www.talkinglatenight.com and find us on iTunes where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.